0: morning, everyone. Uh, if you've joined us for the first time today or recently, uh, you should know that this is not a usual passage of the Scriptures or sermon to hear. Uh, it is usual because what we do as a church is read through uh, the book, books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse each week, to see what God is saying to us in them. Uh, but it's not every week that we have the weighty and confronting words we have here, or a few weeks in a row, actually. Uh, Phil gave me two out of the three passages on sin to preach on, uh, and he only had one, so I wonder what he's trying to say about me. Um, but, but in all seriousness, uh, we have to prepare our hearts for these weighty words. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we ask that your Spirit would be at work in us as we look at these words and see what we are like without the Spirit's work, to see what humanity is like apart from Jesus. Uh, Help us now to understand uh, what humanity is like, that we might understand your grace in Jesus all the more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if there's a person on earth, hopefully not in this room, who doesn't like a good courtroom drama on TV. Uh, am I right? You know, just the, the suspense of those shows really gets you. Uh, all all the, the deception and craftiness, you kind of, it's really intriguing. Uh, and the surprises that come out of nowhere. I also really love just how far-fetched they are and just how unbelievable many of those courtroom dramas really are. Uh, I don't know if you've ever sat in a real court and a real trial, but they are far less dramatic than they ever are in the movies. Uh, They're actually kind of dull. Maybe if you've experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But what we've been reading through Romans over the last few weeks has been like a courtroom trial. Uh, Paul, he's been prosecuting and questioning humanity and showing forth the evidence in the case against us as humans. What has humanity done? What, what are they guilty of? Why do they deserve God's judgment? It's important to know these chapters are about what humanity is like apart from Jesus and apart from his gospel before Paul then gets to the gospel. So let's think about these last few weeks for a moment before we get to our passage. Let's remind ourselves, what have we seen? What is the state of humanity without the gospel? Well, Paul says it's bad news. Two weeks ago, we saw the story of humanity as a whole. Now, apart from God, what have we done? Well, we've seen God's glory in creation, but then we have suppressed that glory and that truth. We've exchanged the truth of God for idols, lies, and worshipped created things instead of the Creator. And so they, as Paul says, he's mainly speaking about the Gentile world, the Gentiles are without excuse In the courtroom of God, they are found guilty. They are deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed against them. But then remember last week. Last week we saw Paul. He corrected those who just might misunderstand him. Paul turned and spoke to those who might say, Yeah, you tell them, Paul. You tell those rotten Gentiles that they're sinners. But, Paul says, to you who have God's law, to those who had his word, to the Jews of that day, and to you who stand in judgment over others, to them, Paul says, have you kept the law always and in every way? Do you not do the very same things that you condemn in others? Don't think that you receive special treatment as God's nation, as Israel. God is totally fair. He will repay each according to his works... There's no favoritism with him. And it's only those who actually do the law, Paul says, who are righteous, not just those who hear it or those who hold it in their hands. And so they, the Jews, Paul said last week, they, the Jews, are also without excuse. In the courtroom of God, they too are found guilty, deserving of God's wrath. And God's wrath will be revealed against them on the last day. It's heavy stuff, and I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry to say that it's actually the same sort of thing in our passage today. See, it's more bad news so that next week we can see the good news. And it's as we see the bad news that it makes the good news oh so good. You see how good it will be once we have walked, or rather trudged, through these chapters on sin and God's wrath. But today, Paul, he continues this courtroom-style prosecution. Uh, Before he gets to the end, the closing arguments and the final verdict, he raises five objections. That's the first part of our passage today. Everyone loves the objections and the courtroom drama. Uh, Here, Paul, he deals with five of them. uh, And it's objections that are raised in light of of what he's just said in chapter 2. And these are real objections that Paul would have heard as he went around the world preaching the gospel and talking about sin and speaking to the Jews. And he goes on later in Romans to to deal with these things in more detail. But for now, he kind of just throws the question out and answers it really quickly, and then he moves on. So you can imagine it like the courtroom objection, or you could imagine it like this. you know, Just imagine you're in a seminar or a lecture, and the presenter up the front, what do they do? From time to time, they say, does anyone have any questions? And then they get questions and answers. Well, just imagine that that's what's happening here. But instead, Paul is like, actually, I know your questions and they're silly questions. And I'm going to answer them and then I'm going to move on. This is what happens in the verses we see here. So let's get into it. What is the first objection? What advantage do the Jews have? Someone asks. Paul's been saying that the Jews, they'll be judged according to their works, just as Gentiles will. And so you can imagine the Jew sitting there thinking, hang on a sec, what is the benefit of being a Jew then? What good is it to be part of God's chosen people and to have his law and then have no advantage? Look at verse 1. Here's how he asks it. So what advantage does the Jew have? or What is the benefit of circumcision, of following all the Jewish law? Well, In one sense, he's already answered this question, hasn't he? In the final judgment, on the last day, there is no favoritism with God. All are judged fairly according to their works. Don't think that you have an advantage just because you're a Jew, Paul says. But what's his answer here? Verse 2, considerable in every way. That's the advantage. There is an advantage to being a Jew, he says. How? If we're all judged the same. Well, he doesn't go into detail here. He does that in chapter 9. All he says here, look there, is about their privilege. He says, first they, the Jews, were entrusted with the spoken words of God. What a privilege to have God's Lord, to have and to hold and to hear the spoken words of God. The creator, the sustainer of all things. If that is not an advantage, then what is? It's a silly question, Paul says. You have the most valuable thing in the world that no other nation had, the words of God. And so the objection one is overruled. He moves on to objection two, has God's faithfulness been cancelled? See, if the Jews had God's word, but, verse three, some of them didn't believe the word, the Old Testament word of God, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Do you see what he's getting at? He's saying if Israel was unfaithful and if they turn again, if some of them were turn away from God and God judges them, well, how can God keep his promises to bless them? God can't be faithful if he's, if he's only judging them. Won't they cause him to not be able to keep his word? And so God would be unfaithful. What's behind this question? Just think about it. What's behind it is the person saying, well, it's, it can't be righteous for God to judge us, so. He should let us go. Let us go. It's not good for God to judge His special people, the Jews. It's them trying to make an excuse, isn't it? Paul, you're wrong. God does show us favouritism, us the Jews. But what's Paul's answer in verse four? Absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone is a liar. See, even if every person ever who ever lived was a liar always, God could be and would still be true and faithful. And then he, Paul goes on to quote from Psalm 51, if you look there. And the point of quoting that is that God is justified, he is righteous, he is faithful, even when he judges and even when he punishes, because he's only doing what he said he would do, because he is just. See, God promises wonderful things to those who turn to him, and then he promises awful things to those who turn away from him. So number two, has God's faithfulness been cancelled? No way. Silly question, Paul says. God is faithful even if no one else is, and he is being faithful even when he judges. Overruled, Paul says. Uh, Objection number three. We're moving quickly, remember? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Now, this one's a little bit more philosophical, but look at the question in verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? See, this person, the objector, says, Okay, Paul, I think I get you. We are so sinful, and God is just so righteous. But if our sin is so sinful that it, that it makes God's righteousness look even better and greater and good, shouldn't God be, shouldn't God be happy about that? How can he punishment if our sin shows us just how righteous he is? Shouldn't God be happy with the net result? And so, well, he shouldn't be angry with us. We've made him look better in the end. And Paul just thinks this is such a silly question that he can't help himself. Did you see it there? He slipped in that phrase, I use a human argument. This is silly human reasoning, according to Paul. And so his answer again in verse 6, look there, Absolutely not. otherwise, how will God judge the world? See, God has to judge the world to be righteous. And it's a given that he will. How else could it be? God would be unrighteous not to judge the world, And it's sin. Silly question, Paul says. To live in a world—just think about it—to live in a world where sin is not and sin will not be held to account and dealt with—is a horrific thought, isn't it? I don't understand how. I personally don't understand how so many people in our world today live with that thought. How is there any happiness or joy in life if this world is all there is, and then there's no justice? For all the injustices that happen. It makes no sense to me. But God is righteous to judge and he will inflict wrath. uh, Even though our sin might make him look more righteous. But that's number three, overruled. He moves on to number four. Objection number four, it's almost the same as number three. Why am I judged if God is glorified? Look at verse seven. This person says, but if my lie, if by my lie, God's truth is amplified to his glory, if, I, if, I'm shown, if God is shown to be more glorious when I sin, well, why am I judged as a sinner? And the last one, if you think about it, number three, was from God's perspective, isn't God unrighteous? And this one is kind of from our perspective, about us, why should I be judged? Again, this is the self-righteous Jew trying to excuse themselves from God's judgment. God should be happy with the net result of being glorified, so he should let us off. But Paul's answer to this is just scathing. He answers the question with another question. He kind of doesn't even really answer it. Look at verse 8. This is how silly he thinks this is. Why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do evil so that good may come their condemnation is deserved Do you see what he's saying he's saying yes god is shown to be glorious in contrast to us and our sin and as paul went around teaching about sin and the gospel people heard what he was saying about that and they started accusing him and his fellow preachers of saying well, you're telling us to sin more so that god might be glorified more that's what paul says sin all the more But Paul says no. That is absolutely ridiculous. We never said that. It's pure slander. And Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6 to deal with this, to talk about sin and God's glory. Um, But he's always clear that we should flee from sin. God's word never encourages us to embrace it. God's glory teaches us to run from it, not to it. So number four, why am I judged even if God is glorified? It's just a silly question. He just doesn't even answer it. Overruled. That then leads us to his final objection, which leads actually back into his main point and the rest of the passage. Are we Jews any better? Look at verse 9. He says, what then? Are we any better? Are we Jews with God's law any better than the idol-worshipping Gentiles out there? Paul's answer here is devastating. Not at all. And here's the clincher, and this is where the whole argument is going. Read it there. It says, For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. All people are under sin. There's no third category Jew, Gentile, that's it. All people are under the power of sin and the guilt of sin that it brings there's no excuse he's already said these five excuses they're not excuses they're silly paul says they're flawed logic they're false jews and gentiles alike fall under the judgment of god no one can wiggle their way out of it all the objections are overruled and so then paul launches into his final his closing arguments in the court and this is like the climax of his whole argument so far. And it's just this horrible, really, it's really an anti climax. Paul rams these horrible truths home. Uh, and you see, how does he do that? How does he make this point final? Uh, how does he drive that point home that all people are sinful, that there's no excuse? Well, he pulls out God's law, he pulls out God's Old Testament and says, look here. And then he gives a barrage of Old Testament verses that condemn all people. It's not fun to read. It's not enjoyable, but just look over those verses again. We're going to read verses 10 to 18. Just look at verse 10 first. This is what Paul has been leading to us to in the last few chapters. He says, As it is written in the law, God's law, there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All the like have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So Paul says, in light of what I've said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 now, and in light of these words from your own law, Jewish people, no one can stand before God. Not a single person has been good enough for God. No one has met his standard. In fact, everyone has turned away from God and with zeal they've done that. And so Paul goes on in verse 13 with more words to condemn. He says our words are evil. The words that humans speak are hideous. That We speak words of death and words of deceit and poisonous words and bitterness. If you walk down the street or you drive anywhere in Sydney, you will hear these words. As I wrote this sermon, I heard people on the street abusing each other. In verse 15, he goes on to say that our feet, he talks about our feet and our walking, our feet run towards harming others. We walk on paths of wretchedness and ruin, he says. Humans don't walk on the path of peace. Peace is not a word to describe humanity. And if you look at the news, or if you walk into any home or any family, you'll see that's true. Now Paul is not saying that people can't show any love or that we can't do anything that's good on our own. We're made in the image of God after all. But he is saying that the situation is worse than we could imagine. That our sin is more awful and ugly and distorted and depraved than we think it is. Most of all, he's saying that none of us meet that standard of God's righteousness. And that even the things that we do that we might call good, they're not done for God and his glory. They're done in rebellion against him, worshipping something else instead of him. None of us has treated God with the honour and the love and obedience and and the thanks and the reverence that he's due for him. No, our natural attitudes, without God's work in us, just left to our own devices, we are the very opposite. Apart from Christ, human hearts are against God. And in verse 18, Paul caps it all off like this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They turn their eyes from him. We ignore and live however we want. And so then Paul reaches the final verdict. This is the point of what he'd been saying for these three chapters until now. And we need to do a little bit more work, so so keep with me. Have a look at verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law. He says, you know, these verses that I've just listed out for you. They're from God's law. They're they're from the Old Testament. And they speak to those who are subject to that law, the Jewish people. The Jews, you who think you're okay with God, actually these words speak against you. These words that you hold in your hands actually condemn you. Let's read on. Those who are subject... The law speaks to those who are subject to the law so that, he says so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. His point is this. He says, I've shown you that the Gentile world, those without God's law, they are under uh, sin. They're under God's wrath for their idolatry. And now I've shown you that the Jewish world, those who have God's law, they are under sin too. And so that means that every mouth... Is shut before God. There is no excuse for Gentile, there is no excuse for Jew. Because of their sin, the whole world is under God's righteous judgment. He's saying if not even the Jews who have the very spoken words of God can be right with God by themselves, well, no one can. No one has, and no one will. And that's actually his point in the very last verse, in verse 20. But, but before you just look at verse 20, actually I'm actually going to show it to you on the screen. Just remember back to last week, because if we compare what Paul says there to what he says here, we kind of get where he's landing, all of these things. So you remember last week, Paul said in chapter 2, he's talking about God's righteous, fair judgment. He says, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. See, you have to obey God's law to actually be righteous. But then well, look at what Paul really thinks and what he really means in chapter 3, verse 20, our last verse. For no one, no one will be justified or righteous in his sight by the works of the law. He, sa- he said, the doers of the law will be righteous, but there is no true doer of the law. In fact, he says, the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And again, he'll press into this more in later chapters, but here he just states that truth. The truth that God's law doesn't make people righteous, but actually shows them just how sinful they are when they disobey it. See, God's law shuts every mouth before God, the judge. And we can't make any excuse. We can't justify ourselves. Not not even the Jews who have his law live it out. The verdict is only guilty. And that's the weighty words, the weighty teaching of three chapters of Romans, culminating in these heavy words. The weight piles from chapter to chapter until this point. And so we're left feeling weighed down, aren't we? We need to remember this is all here for it's all written for us for a purpose. See if you feel the weight of it. That's actually right. There's probably something wrong if, if you don't have a sense of weight from these words. If you have no guilt or no shame or no sorrow at these words, it suggests that you either haven't understood them and and you need to do it read it again or it suggests that your heart is hard. Your heart is hard to God's truth. See, we should feel the weight of it, not because we love to feel mopey or we want to make people feel bad, but because Paul is trying to show us just how much we need the gospel of Jesus. Because, do you remember how Paul started way back in chapter one? Maybe you don't. Here's the refresher. He said, for God's gospel, in God's gospel, he gives the gift of Righteousness. To those who believe, why does God have to give his righteousness, reveal his righteousness, and and give it as a gift? Well, it's because of this. It's because of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3. Because God's wrath is on the sin of all humanity, there's no excuse, there's no unrighteous in and of ourselves, not even one of us can stand before God. But in the gospel, we receive the gift of God's righteousness that we don't deserve. See, see we need the gospel in order to be righteous. See, if, if the gospel, if Christianity is just about taking humanity from being kind of okay to making them a bit better, a bit more moral, well, we can just ignore the gospel and focus on things that are more interesting. But if we need Jesus if we need the gift of God's righteousness, if we're ruined without Jesus, if we're desperate and destitute and depraved, as Paul says we are here, if we're under the wrath of God and the righteous judgment of God and all the fearsome things that that means, well, then the gospel of Jesus is the one thing in the world that we need more than anything else. Isn't that right? And if we know that, well, do you know that first of all? That's what Paul is working so hard to say. That's what maybe you're being confronted with with the first time today. Do you know that we're in a boat that's sinking? The wrath of God is against our sin. If you you know all of that, as I pray many of us do, if you know that, then you know just how much you need the gospel of Jesus. And that is where Romans takes us next week in chapter 3. So by all means, read ahead. I'm not going to stop you reading your Bible. That would be a wrong thing for a pastor to do. Uh, But I'm not going to go there now because we're not going to steal the thunder of those words as we look at them next week. Perhaps some of the most amazing words ever written. Instead, today we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper. And as we share the Lord's Supper, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, it's my hope today that it will bear all the more significance for you. Because of Romans 3. Because in Romans today, we learn why Jesus' body had to be broken and hung on a cross. It was our sin and our rejection of God. And we learn why his blood had to be shed. It was to bear the wrath of God that was against us. So how do we heed the words of Romans 3? Well, we don't make excuses for ourselves. We don't raise objections to God. No, you humble yourself before God because Romans 3 has humiliated us and gotten rid of any sense of pride that we might have. But as we humble ourselves and remember the death of Jesus, well, it makes us all the more thankful, doesn't it? Because, we, we, because when we remember why Jesus' body was broken and why his blood was shed, We know and remember that he did it for us. For sinners, for the sinners that Paul shows us that we are, but we are also reminded and thankful we have been made righteous in God's sight only because of the death of Jesus. Let's pray before we then share the Lord's Supper. Our gracious Father, thank you for these many words of Paul, the many words of your Spirit speaking through Paul to convict us of our sin, to convict us of the need of our world and all people, to know Jesus and the salvation that he brings, that only he brings. Father, help us to stand before you humbled, making no excuses, raising no objections, but knowing we are deserving of your wrath, yet all the more thankful for your grace and everything you have done for us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name for these things. Amen.